0: Welcome to the Academy podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Claire mckeever burgett and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. The conversations I've been having first began out of a desire to connect with our leaders and friends in the time of COVID, and have since evolved into much more. As one of our guests, Rev. Amos de of First Presbyterian Church Dallas says of conversations right now, we aim to have healthy ones, not perfect ones. So as I broach topics with our guests about creativity and anti-racism, white supremacy and the ills of whiteness how to live faithfully in the midst of change and more. I aim to be honest, not perfect, healthy, not right. For as I am learning the ideas of perfect and right are tools of white supremacy. If we're focused on getting everything perfect and right, then we run a fool's errand and are distracted from the real work of justice and of love. White supremacy wants us to be overwhelmed and exhausted, fearful and cautious. The work of love and justice, the work of anti-racism, the work of spiritual formation, begs of us to stand our sacred ground, to open ourselves to change, and to deeply trust in the God who marches, dances, listens, learns, and sings along with us. If you're here for this kind of life-changing work, we're so glad you found us, and we hope you'll stay with us for the long haul. Today we're joined by Ben Boswell, senior pastor of Myers Park Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and two-year Academy 39 graduate. In his role as senior minister, Ben works at the intersection of strategic leadership, spiritual formation, and social justice. In addition to pastoral responsibilities, Ben facilitates anti-racism trainings for white-dominant congregations called, What Does It Mean to be White? Ben is a former commissioned officer in the U.S. Army National Guard, a graduate of Marion Military Institute, Campbell University, Duke Divinity School, St. Paul's School of Theology, and he completed coursework for a PhD in Moral Theology and Ethics at the Catholic University of America. Ben has served as a commissioner on the North Carolina Commission of Inquiry on Torture, and on the board of the Alliance of Baptists and Baptist House at Duke Divinity School. In the following conversation, Ben and I discuss dismantling white supremacy, the black, indigenous, and persons of color we all need to be following right now, his daughter Lucy, what it's like to preach right now, and so much more. Listen on, beloveds. Listen well, listen deep, listen wide. Well, thanks for joining this morning, and oh,
1: I'm 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 honored, really. Um, the academy has been such an important part of my life. Now,
0: yeah, I would love. I mean, you know, I'd sent you that outline, and of course, yeah. always like it to be a guide, but I like to just let it organically kind of flow from us. And so, I was thinking, yeah, I would love to hear about how you found the academy and. And yeah. your your journey to the two year and and throughout the two year and what that was like for you. So yeah, tell me about that.
1: Part of how I came to it was that I was in a in my my second call was a very challenging church um, in Cary, North Carolina that had gone through extreme turmoil uh, right before I arrived. Uh, all the staff had left or been fired. Um, and all the deacons had resigned in mass and left the church and I was the next pastor that they called as they were trying to rebuild and It was a place um there's a lot of toxic uh, emotional um, damage there, a lot of hurt people and hurt people hurt people mm-hmm. so uh, and a lot of that was directed toward clergy so um as I tried to walk through that setting, you know I think I thought I was. Uh, as many do, stronger than I really was, and got to places where I just felt like I gotta, I need a break, I need something. So, I found the five day um academy. I, you know, I, I'm, I've been in Methodist circles for most of my life. I come from a family of Methodist ministers on my mom's side and uh, grew up in the Methodist church. Um, now being Baptist, we can get into that later, but yes, um, yeah. found my way to the Baptist church, but um, so started doing five days as a way to get away and process. And I found myself needing the time in silence uh, and needing the opportunity to process all that was happening in a space where I was moving so fast and dealing with so much that I wasn't really processing what was happening. Um, And so uh, the silence, which as an extrovert, I, you know, wasn't really sure I was going to uh, appreciate turned out to be, sort of the perfect integrative practice for me to move me uh, to where I need to be um, and to kind of take my extrovert uh, Enneagram 7 brain that's constantly thinking into the future and just find stillness uh, and solitude. And that's been really life-giving. And so I'd done three of those to try to you know, get through, and and I had a friend who had uh, been on one with me. Um, uh, he was a leader of one, Blake Kendrick. Uh, give him a shout out, yeah, a buddy. Of mine. Yeah, and Blake is he's a hero in the academy and just a great guy. And he had he was a seminary friend of mine from Duke. We were in seminary together, and he just kept saying, "You need to do this. Um, you need to do the two year." And of course, you know, I was like, eh, "I don't know if I have time." And uh, he kept pushing and kept asking and strongly encouraging it. And um, when I was called to Myers Park Baptist here in Charlotte, through the process of uh, making the decision to come to get to for them to call me and for me to come to Myers Park, I talked a lot about how the Academy had been a life giving and life saving uh, experience for me and helped me get through some real difficulties. And they they said, would you be willing to do the two year? Um, and so the church offered to, to cover the cost and to support sending me to the two year. I don't think I could have done it without their support. Um, Myers parks a tall steeple church with a, a very large congregation. And it's really hard for pastors in that situation to get away and to make a commitment to do, you know, four weeks a year for two years. Um, but they were totally supportive. So, um, I owe them a lot and I have a lot of gratitude for that because it was, it was totally life-changing for me.
0: That says a lot about them as a community. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean that they, so we we'll, I want to hear more about that as, as we get into our conversation. Um, sure. I am ordained Baptist clergy, but my family and I worship at an Episcopal church now. So I'm fascinated. Um, what led you to become Baptist?
1: Well, I like to joke with my Methodist friends that there's nothing like a Methodist polity course to make you Baptist. And so, That's a good
0: one. Yes.
1: <laughs> I was in polity courses at Duke with uh, a family friend, uh, Dr. Uh, Dick Heinzenreiter, and uh, found myself continuing to like, argue for the position of Joseph Kelly and other sort of independent Methodists who were railing against Francis Asbury. And you know, started to realize that there was a sort of an independent sort of autonomous streak in my uh, ecclesiology and um, a passionate commitment to uh, the freedom of the local church. And then um, while I was in seminary, I was called to serve as a youth minister at a small Southern Baptist church, believe it or not, uh, in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, great community of people who love me and affirm me. And they um, they really encouraged me. They wanted to ordain me. And uh, so I got ordained at this small Southern Baptist church uh, in Raleigh while I was in seminary at Duke and um, felt their love and affirmation of my gifts. And just been in the Baptist tradition since um, and f- I felt myself going there theologically while at Duke um, and then uh, have found myself there ecclesiologically and uh, obviously I'm in the sort of very far left uh, progressive wing of Baptist life now <laughs> as far left it really goes for white uh, Baptists and um, that's been interesting because now uh, you know I'm further left than most of my Methodist friends um who I was in seminary with and um which is strange given that I came in as a Methodist and came in where they were and and that kind of thing so that's been it but it's been a good conversation to have and I, I still my parents are still Methodist uh they like to joke you know why would you become a Baptist that's just a Methodist who can't read oh
2: um, my
1: gosh!
2: <laughs> you know they have
1: they have jokes you know right. the family jokes about <laughs> right. it um, that's but right. uh, that's not true uh, there's a lot of Baptists who can read and um, so i I'm, I'm, I'm with those kinds of Baptists and and happy to be there and uh, it's, it's been It's been good to kind of find myself ecclesiologically always uh, you know how folks say hey, they have their roots, they have the tradition that they were raised in, and then the tradition that became their own so i i still I still have deep uh, affinity for the tradition that I was raised
0: in yeah I always say that i'm part Baptist, part Jewish, part uh, Quaker, yeah.
2: um,
0: part Episcopalian now. I mean, for me, I've been on this inter- interesting journey of figuring out sort of why the denominations even sort of exist and um,
2: right.
0: how does that land with me and the way I raise my children and all that. So yeah, so we'll back up a little bit and I'd love to hear right. uh, about you uh, and the, the way I like to get into that is how would you describe the spiritual landscape geography of your faith mm. and uh, what does it look like? What does it smell like? How has it shifted throughout the years?
1: Oh man, um, I, you know, the ge- geography of my faith now uh, mm. is a s- very Southern urban environment. Uh, That's my context. Uh, It's a Southern urban environment in Charlotte that bears the marks of over 250 years of white supremacy. Um, And I pastor a progressive Baptist church um, with a, a long legacy of being progressive in as a contrast to the South and the city itself. Um, and it's in the heart of the whitest and wealthiest neighborhood in the city, which is part of that tension of being both um, committed to social justice and progressive theology, but being in the, in the middle of the whitest and wealthiest neighborhood in this southern urban environment is the tension that has made this context so exciting uh, and also so challenging. Um, and uh, so I live into that tension. Uh, that tension uh, sort of describes my life, also in some ways. And but it's also a very free environment. Um, I've never felt more free uh, to be my true self as a pastor in this environment, and to do and say what I feel led by the Spirit to do and say. Um, they're very receptive to that, but also uh, even when not receptive, give the grace to be to of uh, freedom for their clergy. Um, And so there's this also a dynamic tension between where does the church stand and where does the clergy stand? And they've always called and empowered their clergy to be further out or um, maybe further left or further in some place than the rest of the congregation is and allowing there to be this struggle of, are we going to come with you or not? And sometimes they do. Uh, Sometimes it takes 10, 20 years uh, and sometimes they don't. And, um, and those, that's the story of all my predecessors who've held this same uh, position whose shoulders I stand on. And, um, and so that, that's the kind of geographical landscape. It's, um, I'd say where my faith is practiced uh, could not be more racially divided and um, economically uh, disparate. Um, our, our city that bears the marks of the history of white supremacy is still extremely racially divided. Schools are uh, now more segregated in Charlotte than they were before integration. Um, And um, there's a lot of stories there I could tell about that. And so the city, uh, particularly folks, uh, people of faith and good conscience, like my members, constantly trying to figure out what does it mean to be uh, a person of faith in this environment where we know things are not right and something has to change. And right now, in the midst of this uh racial moment uh where the movement for black lives has uh captivated so many towns and cities and people across the country that question continues to uh to be important and it's sort of fever pitched i'd say right now for our people uh so we're trying to figure out all the ways that we can respond to that as best we can Um, that's a little bit about um the sort of the context i'd say you know um my, how my faith sort of is embodied in that context, um, is, um, uh, well, I would say, I would first say that it's very embodied, um, uh, just in general as, um, and it's embodied through things that don't often, um, uh, get associated with faith, like my parenting, my, my 10 year old daughter, Lucy, who happens to be, um, both, uh, adopted and African-American, um, and, um, and so, and, and a child of, uh, of a, of a divorced family and a PK. So pray for her and yeah. uh, send money for her future counseling and therapy bills. <laughs> um, but yeah. she's, she's just full of smiles and happy in spite of all the, um, uh, intersections of her life and, um, parenting her is a faith practice for me, um, Uh, of joy and um, but also deep concern uh, for what uh, it might mean to to grow up as a black woman in America uh, at this time so I think about that a lot and I talk with her a lot about that and but also we do uh, fun and silly things that have nothing to do with that because we just want to live our lives so there's something embodied about that that's faithful Um, it's embodied in friendship and laughter and community, which as an extrovert for me, that is basically how my faith is lived out is with people, which has made this uh, COVID pandemic, a new exercise in spirituality, mm-hmm. <laughs> because I've had my people um, who um, communicate God to me, um, and uh, are the are the embodied witnesses of God in my life so often, um, And so that's been challenging to figure out how to do ministry without that physical presence um, and to stay spiritually uh, connected. And um, the Academy really helped me with some of that. Um, I, you know, as an extrovert, you know, loneliness, being alone is so hard uh, when you're like off the charts extrovert, that being alone feels like loneliness. But what I was able through the two year to figure out how to do is to, to reframe, I'm using good seven language now as an enneagram seven, but to reframe, um, to reframe loneliness as solitude mm. and to, to understand that just because you are alone doesn't mean you have to be lonely. Right. And uh, that takes uh, getting in touch with yourself and learning to not be anxious with yourself alone um, and to hear your true thoughts, and to feel your true feelings, and to own them, and to sit with them, and to not be afraid, and that takes practice. And that was part of what the gift of the academy gave me is the, the ability to sit with my, um, to sit with the inner stuff in here that I don't always like sitting with. Um, I mean, it's obviously embodied in the passionate pursuit of peace and justice, um, which is a critical part of my ministry and just my own faith. Um, And then I would say in things like eating and drinking and exercising and living and worship and, um, and obviously and meditation, which is a really important practice uh, of mine that I, I lead in my context as well.
0: So there's a lot there. I first want to ask what wisdom does Lucy share with you Uh, what are you what are you learning from her and with her
1: oh well you know um i think the wisdom that she shares with me is that uh just i think it's joy so her middle name is joy and she really lives into that and she, from the time she wakes up until the time she goes to sleep, she wants to experience life to the fullest, you know, um, to laugh and to have fun and to play. She wants to play, you know, and, you know, you want, as you grow older, you forget how to play sometimes and you forget how to really enjoy life to the fullest. And you can get caught up in the, I can get caught up in the, the world being um, just so hard, such a place filled with so much pain and injustice. Um, and so she reminds me that part of resilience in the midst of that and part of figuring out how to continue to keep going in the work of social justice is to find the ways to play and to not be, and not, and to not have to apologize for it. Like, you know, uh, so yeah. a, couple, a couple weeks ago um, the city was like, our city here was basically like on fire with protest, and we just went to the mountains for a couple of days, you know, and played in a river for two or three days with some friends, and that was what we did, and and it felt like we were recharging for what was next, um, and it was good.
0: Yeah. So, are you a, a seven with an eight wing? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Look at you, enneagram wizard.
0: Yeah. Right. (laughs) It's something that I'm careful about talking about, but um, because not everybody, you know, understands it or knows it, but it is a hot topic. And I identify as a three with a four wing. um, And I'm where I'm going here is that play is often really challenging for me. Um, and I have a four and a half year old and a nine month old. And I mean, the four and a half year old wants to play all the time as well, right? Um, there's, and so when I, I tend to be serious and uh, very into work and moving things forward and yep. what, is, what is the grand vision that we're working toward? And I mean, all of these things and had some recent dreams that were all about water and play Mm. Mm. and so in speaking with one of our priests who who does a lot of dream work he he said what would it look like to put an inflatable pool in the front or backyard and just play and I was like I mean okay (laughs) so (laughs) we do have we do have an inflatable pool you know and so we did and we've done that I mean, just like it's nobody's business. Like, we just blow it up, put it in the front yard, and have done that for the past few weekends, you know, when it's not raining and when the weather allows. And it has been very cold. (laughs) The water is still cold, even though it's hot outside. Um, And I sort of ease in. But once I tell you what, once I got into that water, and I mean, my four and a half year old was elated. That his, that his mom is in her swimsuit and just like running around the front yard. Anyway, it's been really lovely and beautiful. And yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there's something about our children leading that way for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That feels yeah. Really, I love really that. Important. Really important. Um, so your vocational journey, I think is, is interesting. Uh, tell us a little bit more about you were in the army. yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and, and I'm curious how you kind of have landed in this, uh, as you put it kind of far left wing hmm. radical, you did your PhD work, I think on, on white supremacy. Um, yeah. how did, how did you get there?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Well,
1: um, so, when I was in high school, um, last year of high school, my mom had taken a job at UNC Charlotte and she's a professor and we moved from Pennsylvania where we were living at the time back to the South where they were from, where I was born. And, um, that year I had sort of a, a very, um, uh, indis- something I can almost not describe in words, experience of the Holy spirit just sort of rushing in my life with vocational call to ministry. Um, and it came in a lot of ways. We were attending. <laughs> this is gonna you're not even gonna believe this. We were attending a an evangelical megachurch kind of c- community at that time. Uh, we were one of the first 100 members of this community that now has thousands and thousands of people. Um, and so it was an evangel. It was a Methodist, supposedly Methodist church, um, but a very evangelical community, praise and worship, and 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 all that goes along with that. Um, but God uh, used that moment uh, to just sort of breathe the spirit into my life. And I find my, found myself like driving home from school and going to the Christian bookstore and like picking up books and reading all this, these Christian books, which is, if anybody knew me before that, they would know that this had to be a miracle. Um, and so um, I started feeling this call, but I had already joined the army at that point. Um, I had already made a decision when I was a junior in high school to, Enlist in the United States Army with a friend of mine, um, and uh, I had this commitment kind of looming over my head the whole time, of my entire senior year, that I was going to have to go the basic training uh, that summer, and um, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll just become, I'll just become a chaplain. That's what I, this must mean—that God is taking where I'm at in my life and putting the Spirit connecting to it, and. And so I must, it must be a call to military chaplaincy. So I applied for some ROTC scholarships, uh, didn't get any of them. And, uh, and finally a small military uh, academy in junior college, kind of like the Citadel or West Point or something, but much smaller in Southern Alabama, 30 miles from Selma. So in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. um, called me and said, if you come here, we'll make all your enlistments go away all your commitments go away and you can come here and compete for a scholarship and become an officer in two years. So I was like, okay. So I went uh, to Southern Alabama. I had only been in the South for a year. um, And then I was suddenly uh, plunged into the deep South. It was a huge learning experience for me. Um, There was uh, a totally different kind of racism uh, there that I had never encountered before, either in Pennsylvania or in, Uh, Charlotte. Um, And so a much more sort of obvious on the surface kind of racism. And, um, and also uh, kind of embedded with that is this, uh, this journey of uh, of becoming a military officer, which is what I did while I was there. Suddenly, pretty quickly, when I got there, my, um, (laughs) my desire to become a chaplain sort of poof and vanished. Uh, I'll never forget being lined up the first day that I was there with all the other first year students and having the upperclassmen who were, of course, uh, cadets in this military hierarchy, looking down on us and uh, asking us all what we wanted to be in the Army. And, you know, people say, you know, infantry, armor, artillery, military intelligence, military police. They get to me and I say, chaplain. And they just laughed.
2: Yeah. You know,
1: they just laughed. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to survive here if I if I keep that. And so... That's kind of the story of my life in a lot of ways is pride, my pride, my ego, my desire to be the best of the best or to uh, excel sort of got the better of me and um, led me uh, to kind of abandon that uh, spiritual calling at the time. And so by the time I I came in thinking I was going to be a chaplain, I left as an infantry officer, actually an airborne infantry officer. I've been to airborne school. I've done uh, infantry school, ranger school. I mean, all the hardcore stuff, you know, jumped out of an airplane five times, all these, all these kinds of things that you do in the Army, uh, and then uh, came back to North Carolina. And, but there was some little piece of that spirit still speaking because I made a decision to go to Campbell University because they had a really amazing ROTC program that I could finish up what I needed to do for my military commitment with, and they had a good religion program. And that there was a, a place where it seemed like a place that could, would fit for me. And, um, and I decided, and I enrolled as a religion major, religion and philosophy major. So I'm, I'm an infantry officer now and a religion yeah. and philosophy major at Campbell University. And I was there and I was the only religion major who was in the army, right, um, at Campbell when 9-11 happened. And okay. that was really the watershed event of my life. Uh, at that point that took me and transitioned me from a place where I was headed um, where the whole kind of where I was myself and the world were kind of in line going one way and where nine 11 and I start going sort of against the grain of the, of society. Because of that moment, I was, I watched students um, reactions, professors reactions to nine 11 and, and I knew because I was, you know, both studying religion academically and in the army. I knew that a lot of things that were being said about the military were not true about the army, about soldiers. I knew the reality of what it looked like on the ground. So I was not, I was not overly impressed with some of the um, what I call sort of like backseat patriotism. Um, You know, and, and, and I was also not impressed by sort of religious leaders calling for holy war at that time. So um, that was, I sort of, the rest of the world kept ramping up in their xenophobia and militarism and I went the other direction and I I realized I needed to go back into chaplaincy, back that direction and went to Duke um, for Divinity School uh, to become a chaplain. He showed up there the first day wearing my military uniform, you know. Uh. Um, But there's something about going to Duke and encountering people like Stanley Harawass and other professors that I had there um, made me look really hard at my commitment to, uh, to sort of American empire and the military and really wrestle with where's, what does it mean to be a Christian in the midst of this particular empire at this particular moment and, and uh, to have a critique of its militarism. Um, and so, uh, I've always sort of had this passionate connection with my military background, plus my academic sort of studies of peace and justice, sort of working together. It's led me into some very interesting places. Um, and so I, obviously my, my pride got the better of me there again. And I thought, you know, here I was going to be able to become a chaplain and then maybe a pastor, but a Duke, you know, at least when I was there, people were like, pastors are the, they're the worst. You know, you don't want to be a pastor. You want to be a professor. You want to go get your doctorate degree.
2: Uh-huh. You know, and so uh-huh. my
1: ego, my ego got a hold of me again, and uh, so then I went to uh, Catholic University of America, and I was going to study the war, ethics of war and peace, and I enrolled as a, a theology, moral theology uh, student there, working on a PhD, and uh, finished all the coursework, and then had another moment where uh, the spirit kind of said. Are you going to listen yet? I've been calling you to this thing for so long. When are you going to listen that this is the thing? And so um, I, you know, I, I, my military commitment had been done at that point and um, just finally decided, you know what? I think I need to be in pastoral ministry. Like this spirit thing has been saying this for so long. And as, as soon as I finally surrendered to it, everything in my life changed. And so I've been in pastoral ministry now for over 15 years um, since that kind of decision. I never finished the PhD at Catholic okay. University of America. Um, but what you mentioned earlier, I finished um, a, a doctorate of ministry recently that's focused on uh, whiteness uh, and looking at having conversations about whiteness in white dominant churches. Um, yeah. So okay. I think really adopting Lucy 10 years ago, she's 10 years old now adopting my, my daughter who's African-American uh, that was the beginning of uh, you know. There's one awakening I've kind of already mentioned about awakening to American Empire and militarism and trying to find my way through that. Um, but adopting a black daughter as a white man, that uh, that shook my life in a way that I was not expecting. Uh, and I thought I you know I thought I was really um, progressive on the issue of race you know ten years ago. Uh, you know I, i'd read stuff i'd been to seminary you know uh and had you know um i just thought i knew what i was i was talking about but i had no clue i really had no clue um and so when she, the year she was born was also the year that the new jim crow was published and the year trayvon martin uh was killed and the movement for black lives began and it's been since um 2010 that I've been on this journey as a pastor trying to figure out what does it mean to me to be a father of a black girl? Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian in America at this moment? What does it mean to be a pastor of white, ch- white predominantly white churches uh, in this moment? And those three things combined together have led me into sort of, a, I guess, a new, a new aspect of my calling, which is to, to help white congregations and white predominantly white spaces, um, look at whiteness, uh, as a part of their work in, uh, racial justice.
0: So there's a lot of critique out there, um, of white people who adopt, uh, children of color. Um, and so I'm curious, uh, how you converse with that and hang with that and what led you, uh, to adopting Lucy in the first place.
1: So, yeah, I mean, transracial adoption is, um, certainly controversial. Um, um, and we learned that the hard, the hard way, um, we didn't set out intentionally to adopt an African-American child. We uh, wrestled with infertility for eight years and decided that we wanted to go through a, the process of adoption after a uh, very difficult uh, process of infertility, um, uh, which was um, my it really was my problem. I want to own that here. A lot of men don't talk about infertility. I don't think, and I think it's good for men to own that um, and own that journey. So it was really hard, and. Um, when we finally decided to adopt, we worked through a, 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 an agency. So we just went to an agency that we knew with people that we trusted, and it was Jewish Family Services in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And of course, the first one of the first things they ask you is, "Are there any uh, child, kinds of children, race, you know, races that you're not open to?" It's a part of their discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, they're trying to place children in places where they're going to be loved and cared for. You know, and it, that's challenging to do if you're not open. We just said open to anything, you know, and we, uh, we started the process in October, had our home study in October. A birth mother chose our profile on Christmas Eve and Lucy was born on February 24th. So we had less than nine months from the time we started the process to the time we were in the hospital, invited by the birth mother into the hospital to be with her after she gave birth and to take care of Lucy. Um, and the birth mother was, her birth mother is such a sweet human being and uh, so kind to allow us to be there. And I'll, I'll never forget sitting with her pastor, uh, a, a black female minister in Richmond, who was there with us and talking with her about the process in the hospital on the day of. Um, and then uh, she had not told all of her friends that she'd made a decision to adopt. So while we're sitting in this room with the birth mother, you know, taking care of Lucy, uh, her friends or family would come in and they'd say, they'd just bluntly say, who are these white people? What are they doing here? And, yeah. and we would not speak. We knew better. Uh, and then she would say, those are the adoptive parents. And they would just look at us and say, you can't have this child. Yeah. So, you know, we never, we didn't know for sure that she would make the decision in the end uh, to to release uh, Lucy, and, and, and uh, but she, ended, she eventually decided to make that decision after the waiting period that Virginia has, and we still felt, I mean, you know, to be really honest with you, we felt like we were stealing when we drove from the hospital. I mean, let's, I, we, I can just be honest with you about that. Um, yeah. It's it the strangest experience. Um, and so uh, I guess there's a tension, like so many things in life, about you know, is it right? Was it right? Is it wrong? How do you do it well? Um, And I think what's important to me is to make sure that Lucy is always loved and affirmed uh, for her blackness, that her blackness is affirmed constantly. And we talk about that. And um, that's taken a lot of work, making sure that certain kinds of books are available for her as a kid. Um, that we watch movies where black characters are centered and not the secondary, you know, background character amongst whiteness um, that, you know, um, and that she feels proud of her heritage and who she is and, and what it means to be black and that, that that's constantly affirmed for her and that she has and that we're in, you know, that she has black friendships and we have. Um, community that she can participate in that has people that look like her that are in places uh, of leadership and power and that um, she can connect with and see herself um, in the world. So that's, and that's constant work. I mean, that is just, that's the constant work of my life as a parent and it will be for the rest of her life. And as long as I'm alive.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing that and being honest. I appreciate that. Um, Let's talk about whiteness. Okay. Um, So both of us are, I think, white identifying people. Um, Of course, I've done a lot of work and reading uh, for many years, my journey and awakening uh, to race and the fact that I actually, like, it's not a black person's thing. It's that, like, I also have race and it's a conversation Began for me, I think I was an English major in college, uh, so I'd say about, I don't know, let's say 20 years or so. And for me, it's been, okay, there's not like this place that I arrive and somehow I'm illumined and, you know, sort of above it all that,
2: right, right. that, it's,
0: that it's a daily thing. I, I think I wrote to you and said, you know, my dear friend, Lisa Yaboa, Do you know Lisa?
1: I don't think I know Lisa.
0: Okay, she's a graduate of Duke Divinity as well, um, but probably a few years before you. But she and I had a conversation uh, last week, um, or maybe this week, time is interesting, who knows. But she's a dear friend, um, Black woman pastor in Raleigh. But the way she described anti-racism is that we wake up every day and ask ourselves hard questions. Mm. That, that it's in many ways the examine, that it is spiritual practice. Uh, so what does whiteness uh, look like for you? And how are you having conversations about it? Uh, not only in your family, but in your church and community. Yeah. And I'm just wondering if, if what you're, you'll share with us, of course, I think might help uh, those who are listening
1: yeah so i mean this has been a journey for me and it was both uh included in my journey through the academy of looking at my own whiteness uh spiritually and then in my work in in doctoral work of looking uh, at whiteness as a theoretical concept but also and how it impacts religious communities and churches and christianity and the faith i guess i would start by saying as pastors I really love the way you say this is white people's work and white people need to do it. And, and i 100% agree with that. And my entire life philosophy is now based around that. Um, As pastors, we, the first thing we always say is that everything begins with repentance uh, and then we should, you know, have a conversation about race uh, in our churches. Those are the two things I always hear repent and then have a conversation about race but my feeling now after, after working on this and looking at it and studying it and, and doing a project within my own church with white folks is that as white people, we can't start with either of those uh, because we don't know what to repent for and we don't know how to have conversations about race without being racist. Mm um and or pursuing the conversation as if it's an abstract idea that is something we're not enmeshed in because we don't imagine ourselves to have race we imagine ourselves to be non-raced or to be the normative race uh, everybody else is raced and we're white uh, or we don't even think about white we just we just are because white right. is white white goes unmarked it's unnamed it's in the shadows it's always hidden that's part of how white supremacy maintains its power is to hide itself in plain sight. Wow. Um, so I think I, I always start with this Baldwin quote about how white people are trapped in a history they don't understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it.
2: Wow.
1: And I think the reason I love that quote is because it's hopeful in that there's, it, it imagines that, that we, like, we like in some ways, like everyone that is not white uh, or is racialized as non-white, are also trapped in this thing called whiteness our our being trapped is different because the whiteness that we're trapped in gives us privilege and advantage and yet it's still something that we can be released from we can be liberated from it we can find our way out of this and um, just like others can find liberation from the oppression of whiteness Um, but we can't be liberated from it we can't find our way out if we don't understand it And we can't understand it until we look at it very, very closely and and look at what it's always been from its origins and how it's manifested itself over and over again. And by that, I mean whiteness. Where did whiteness come from? Where did it start? How has it morphed and evolved over time? What does it look like now? How is it continuing to impact people now? So the work that I feel called to is helping white dominant spaces Name and identify and confront and divest from um, or um, disavow whiteness would be maybe how I would put it. And I don't know that that is totally and one hundred percent possible, but I think it's worth doing. Um, In my so I just kind of I feel like it's important to define whiteness. A lot of people use the term white supremacy, and the reason I feel like it's not as helpful always to use that language is because when we think when white people, moderate white people hear white supremacy, they, um, they think of uh, Confederate flag waivers, neo-Nazis, Dylan Roof, Char- 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 um, Charlottesville, you know, yeah. they, that's what we think of. But um, whiteness, the idea of whiteness already carries with it the idea of supremacy. The, the, the creation of whiteness was the concept of supremacy from its start. It was an idea that this particular, um, this, this way of being is better than everybody else. This Anglo-Saxon way of being, or this white way of being, this European way of being was supreme, better, uh, and everybody else was under it. And so the way I define whiteness Um, theologically in my my work um, on this, because, you know, you have to write a theology of what you're going to talk about when you do these doctorate degrees. I I define whiteness as an anti-Black epistemology uh, of domination and control. And theologically, for me, it bears the marks of what Paul might describe as a principality or a power. Um, But it has become this principality and power has become and has been always the cultural hegemony of, of the United States. So the dominant ideology of, of American life from the beginning, which is why we have to look at whiteness. And when we do, uh, we don't like what we see. We're, I mean, we're not gonna like this process. I mean, we just need to admit that it's going to take uh, lots of thick skin and um, lots of pain and then taking a break being stretched outside of our comfort zones and then coming back into our comfort zones um, to reckon with this whiteness. Um, But uh, Layla Saad has this quote, you can't dismantle what you can't see and you can't challenge what you don't understand. So if we're going to, if we're going to do this work on racism, um, white people have to, to, to own not only that it's our work that we have to do with ourselves, but that whiteness is the work that we have to do, that we have to look at our own race, our own racial identity and its history and its legacy, where it came from, what it looks like, how it's how it's worked. Um, and um, that is hard. It's really, really, well, really hard work.
0: Right, and I think part of what is hard is, uh, getting at what we have to repent of. Right. I mean, because right. Repentance is about saying I'm wrong. (laughs) I have dehumanized. I'm, I need to say, I'm sorry. I need to seek deep forgiveness and even deeper reconciliation. And I mean, right. That requires in my experience Uh, laying down and letting go of everything that has kept me powerful Mm. and safe Mm -hmm. and secure. (laughs) Um, And uh, to me, that is what can be really hard. Like when we use the word hard, Uh. um, because I like being safe and I like being powerful. right? Right. That's right. Um, I like being able to, uh, right? I I can drive in my car and not be pulled, and and the taillight be out and not be pulled over.
2: Right.
0: That's what I mean by safety. Um, Now, of course, all of this, I mean, I'm big on intersectionality, right? So I am a woman. (laughs) I mean, Mm -hmm. all of these, like, so all of these things uh, get, I don't think we can just dissect, right? Um, Yeah from one another. Uh, and I come with white skin. And so, yeah, there's, there's just power and safety that come along with that naturally. And, um, and much, yeah. to, our, to, much to our detriment. Um,
1: so yeah, one of the ways that Sonia Renee Taylor, who I love, uh, very much, uh, and follow, uh, who everybody should, because she's so affirming, uh, and her movement of radical self-love is, I think, something the church needs desperately. Um, but she she says that whiteness is the is creates a hierarchy of um, where, for instance, I'm at the top, right? Because I'm a white cisgendered heterosexual male who is economically secure right? Yeah. Uh, and then below me, right, are others in gradations of hierarchy with, of course, Black poor folks on the very bottom. This is the thing we have to understand. So when everybody says, well, I'm not, you know, I don't, I didn't come from privilege. Yeah, but you're in the hierarchy at a different place than Black poor folks, um, particularly Black poor women, right? Black poor trans women, right? You know, when you start getting the intersectionality, you really see who's at the very, very bottom, uh, whose lives, you know, society often says don't, doesn't matter, right? And treats them like they don't matter. And so you can find, we can find ourselves in this hierarchy. Maybe we're Latinx, um, but we're economically secure. Maybe we're a white woman. We're, you know, we're oppressed as women by the patriarchy, but we're white. You know, maybe we're a poor white person. So we're somewhere in here. Um, you know maybe uh, maybe we're an immigrant right and so we find ourselves in this hierarchy and we have to understand that whiteness has created the hierarchy whiteness owns the hierarchy and decides where you go in it and that's one of the reasons why the church or christian people of faith have to stand against the hierarchy and deconstruct it name it for what it is as a system of pathology of power and control and domination and then uh, reject it, find ways to reject it. But you can't, if you can't see it, then you'll, you, the first thing you do is say, well, no, no, I don't come from privilege. Um, and so uh, I think that the, the thing that is so startling about whiteness, when I began to look at it for me and helped me look at it in myself, is on the one hand, we have the Black community that lives in a constant state of trauma and um, pain and uh, oppression and that trauma is generational trauma 400 years of generational um, oppression over and over again over here on the white side we have generational denial we live in and so if there's an emotion of trauma here and pain the emotion over here is denial and so our parents we're in denial, our grandparents were in denial our great grandparents were in denial our great 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 grandparents were in denial. Denial is baked into our bones. This is why the first reaction is always denial though Do- it doesn 't exist white privilege doesn 't exist whiteness doesn 't exist you know um, you know or whiteness is just one race among many we 're just another race we 're all equal you know um, and and whiteness is not an ethnicity it 's a construction right so I think there's, that's the hardest thing is to work, work with white folks on their denial because that's the first reaction and it's baked into us generationally. And I do it. We all, we all f- succumb to denial from time to time where we just don't want to look at all the trauma we've caused that our ancestors have caused and that we benefit from currently in the present. We don't want to look at it.
0: Yeah. So you've named a couple of your teachers, uh, folks you follow um yeah, so yeah. Tell, tell us uh what's your who do you turn to who are you learning from mm. and, and yeah how are they helping shape the conversation
1: well so many of my teachers uh books are right now on like the new york times uh nonfiction bestseller list because there's a moment that we're in right now where these books are being sold yeah. out which i find to be incredibly hopeful so people are getting educated which i love mm-hmm. um so you know, James Baldwin is to me. Um, there's a spiritual aspect to his writing on whiteness, where he really wants to plumb the depth of the spirituality of white people that led them to the place where they uh, could oppress black folks without looking at their own race. And I find his work to be so helpful. Like The Fire Next Time is is like uh, the Bible on whiteness. Um, and, and then there's uh, scholars like Willie Jennings, uh, theologians, Willie Jennings, Kelly Brown Douglas, Ebony Marshall Terman, who are really helpful in looking at race, um, J. Cameron Carter. Um, some of my teachers have been uh, these folks uh, in person, but also I'm reading their work. Uh, everyone's reading Ibram Kendi right now. I think that's fantastic. So lots of work on anti-racism, that's important.
0: Yeah, uh, how, to, how to be an anti-racist.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think there's a couple of books that I would recommend particularly from women who write about the intersection of um, spirituality and race. Um, so um, one book that's, uh, that was really important for me is called The Inner Work of Racial Justice. And the subtitle is Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. Uh, and it's by a woman named Rhonda McG- Maggie. M-A-G-E-E, and it's phenomenal in the kind of revealing the work that she's done with law students on helping them using meditation and mindfulness practices to help them recognize their racism and their race and their whiteness. Also, um, uh, Ruth King has a good book similar to that called Mindful of Race, where she looks at mindfulness practices as a way to To tackle the question. These were both instrumental books in the development of the project that I did with my church on uh, looking at whiteness. And another one that was not written until, not published until after my project is called Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad. And um, that book is, in my opinion, like a devotional on how to come to awareness of your whiteness and then how to begin to um, disavow um, white supremacy in your life, in your family, in your community, in your church. And it's like a week day by day thing. You open it up just like, you know, Christians love those daily devotionals. We just love them.
2: Oh, and yeah.
1: room people love them. So this is like, to me, this is like the daily devotional about whiteness Okay, that, that's out there. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty strong. Um, you know, and I think there's there's something really important about the spiritual side of this that um, that the church has an opportunity to lean into and to become a teacher um, that helps people see whiteness for what it is. I, I think as sin and evil, and then help white people to walk away from it. As the church has always been a bulwark against sin and and evil, you know, right. uh, or tried to be <laughs> should should have been right. Uh,
0: you mentioned um, Sonia Renee Taylor. Yeah. Uh, she's with The Body Is Not an Apology, correct? Yeah,
1: she, she wrote that book and she created that
2: movement. Yeah. The Body yeah. Is Not an Apology. Yeah, yeah. great so, book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. on Radical self-love. Yes. As yeah. an act of resistance. Uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, she's a great one to follow on Instagram because she's just constantly teaching people. And uh, I've gotten the chance to meet her, and she, uh, she preached at Myers Park.
0: Oh, really? Wow.
1: Yeah, we, we did a podcast on her book, and somehow she found it and reached out to us. And she lives in New Zealand, but she was coming through, and you know, we, we were able to link it up. And uh, yeah, she did her poem, The Body is Not an Apology, as the benediction, and we were all like in tears after that
0: what are some of the spiritual practices uh, that keep you grounded in engaging this really huge work?
1: Um, well, I'm glad you mentioned that. So in the project, two things. I mean, I think first for me personally, meditation practice is critical for my own, my own work um, personally. And I, um, I'm not only doing that on my own now on a regular basis, but I'm leading small groups in the church in um, regular meditation practice um, each week. Uh, on a, and now we have some people who've been going doing that with me for over two years that are now leading their own small groups. So it's kind of kind of trying to create a little, a movement of mindfulness practice practitioners within the church. It's been extremely helpful in the midst of the pandemic. Um, but, in, and now also, uh, in the midst of this moment, uh, of, of a tumultuous moment in, in American history. Um, so I do a lot of meditation practice. I mean, I, th- I would say my other spiritual practices are probably like reading is like a huge spiritual practice, which is a commitment to read black authors, um, and their, and, and their work. Um, so I do that a lot. And, um, but I'll, I wanna talk about the practices I used in the project with my church about whiteness, because I think that that's helpful. So at first I wanted to just have this curriculum where I just made them read Baldwin, Du Bois, Jennings, all the great authors who write about whiteness. And so we were just gonna read black authors on whiteness. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that they, we needed a container for this small group pra- practice that where they could approach this with the most open mind and the most open heart so that transformation could happen spiritually, emotionally, physically. And, um, what I did is I used Parker Palmer's circle of trust model as the foundation. And then I, we started with meditation each time we ha- we met together with silent meditation and then each, each, each person would be given three uninterrupted minutes without a response from anybody in the group to reflect on how the readings that week made them feel.
2: Mm.
1: No one gets to say anything about it. No one gets to respond to them. They just, it's uninterrupted. And then, um, and then after that we would have the group discussion more thoroughly, but then we would end every session with a practice of confession. And I used the Sarasota Confession that was written by a group of Presbyterians uh, that's specific, specifically focused on race yeah. and combined it with an, an assurance of pardon or an absolution that was based uh, in Psalm 103 that I kind of um, changed a little bit and retranslated. Um, and, and we use that every time. Uh, and then I also invited them, you mentioned the examine earlier, I invited them to use the practice of examine during the days when they, we were not meeting. So every day that they would read and they would look at the world, they were to use the examine and, and they had a journal to write. Um, and another, and so that, that framed each session and then each day that they were in this six week series. They also, at the beginning of the six weeks, wrote a racial autobiography. And I gave them a prompt on how to do this, Um, write your racial story, the story of, of race and you. And then by the end, I had them rewrite it again, attending to whiteness. And so for instance, you had some people who'd start with like the first, their story is the first time I met a black person, I was five years old. And then by the end it's, you know, my grandmother taught me how to be white by, you know, doing this, doing this, doing this. And it was, it's, it was powerful to see the moral formation.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of my first semester at Vanderbilt Divinity School. I took a womanist theological ethics course. And my professor, Stacey Floyd Thomas, had us answer this set of about, it was like 10 questions for race, class, and gender. Mm. And that was our first assignment. It was like, let's just go. And so I remember, right. It was sort of the question was, you know, how was race sort of talked about in your family growing up? And I wrote as a, I think I was probably 26 or so. Oh, we didn't really talk about race Mm
2: -hmm. in my family
0: Mm -hmm. growing up. (laughs) I remember her note was, this is the point, (laughs) right? I mean, she just like, was like, right, like, let's just start here. and. Yeah. And, and and this is from me, right? Who I have been reading African American literature as an English mm. major and as a writer, mm-hmm. and I worked at Sojourners,
2: mm-hmm. social mm.
0: justice, you know, all of this. And I'm and so I just I, I highlight this just to say, like, it's the journey, and it requires that examine that practice to really go. Oh, right, let's yeah. go back. And so I love that about the the autobiography. Um, yeah. Yeah. That you have folks do. Do you have this, uh, is it published? Is it shareable? Uh, how to, well, find
1: it's, a, it? it's a, it's a demon. So it just, I've just finished in April. Um, okay. so okay. you know, it's, it's out there now in the world as a, as a doctorate ministry project. I'm happy to share it with people who are curious about it, but I'm also, um, willing to work with pastors or um, folks in seminaries and, and other places who are working with other pastors or leaders or mm-hmm. congregations or people who serve in white predominantly white contexts who mm-hmm. who would like to you know take, a, take the time to focus on this work with their with their folks one, one aspect of what I do that I think is important it to mention is uh, and the most controversial part of my whole project is that I, I, I limited the group only to white participants
2: mm-hmm.
1: Uh, which was interesting because the uh, human subjects research folks at the university were like, what? Um, And once I kind of explained why they got it, but um, even participants in the group um, struggled with that all the way to the end of the process. And I see that as a part of what it means, what whiteness does is it wants to force us into conversations with black people before we're ready um, to often fulfill, uh, to help us uh, make us feel less guilty about the legacy of white supremacy and to f- try to seek some way to that they might absolve us through their friendship of what we've, what we've ex- experienced, the terrorizing legacy of. And certainly we should have friends that are African-American. I'm not trying to say that. But when we first do the work of looking at race as, as white folks, or I, I would say, even if we think we've already done all the work on race as white folks, yeah. we need to work with uh, in groups of other white folks to talk about this question because, and what I found is that there, people are able to be more honest and vulnerable about the, the legacy of their own racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might say, well, maybe it should be facilitated by a black person, but then it becomes just wanting to please the facilitator. Well, I'm not going to, I just want to make the facilitator feel good. And then you can also drop all your guilt and fragility on the facilitator. Um,
0: And putting the burden on people of color. Right. To lead us to, to, right. And then that continues that cycle.
1: Right. It's free labor oftentimes, you know, or or labor, you know, we we want them to labor us through our own work, you know, the labor that we need to do. Um, So, yeah, that was controversial, but it turned out to be, I think, confirmed by the project in the end, or at least I hope so. You know, we always hope that we come up with the answer that our work starts to try to prove in the first place. But that's what I'm currently willing and feeling called to do is to, I mean, we're getting ready to do that now with the whole church. We did it with a small group of 11 people. Those 11 people are going to be trained now to do other groups of of the same kind and we're, we're kind of, I'm changing some things in the curriculum that we learned as we went through it. And I'm also doing that now in the community as well. We're gonna do one of those that's not church-based, that's just for people in the city. Um, and I'm working with some other leaders uh, from an organization called QC Family Tree, Helms and Greg Jarrell, who live in intentional community on the west side of, of Charlotte, uh, which is a, a very uh, impacted area of the city. Um, they're going to work with me to lead this group with the community. So we're getting ready to do more of this, and we call the groups. I at least I call the groups. What does it mean to be white? Just very simple title, um, uh, inv- an inviting title. You know, I hope. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's. Um, I'm excited about the opportunity for more people to participate through this, and I'm and I'm w- certainly open and willing to to share that with anybody. So I, I'm happy, I'll even send my DM to somebody if they want to read it. You know. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so if folks wanted to contact you, is your email the best or where? where yeah. You-, I
1: mean, you can find me on Facebook, um, Benjamin Boswell, and, or you can okay. find Myers Park Baptist on Facebook. Uh, I'm yeah. also, I'm tweeting at Myers Park pastor and, uh, I'm on Instagram at Benediction is my name, but the, the E in Ben is a three. Yeah. So okay. <laughs> you can find lots me in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. Lots of ways. Um, so, aware of our time, I want to get in just a little bit as we kind of, before we wrap up, um, about your, your sermon that you recently preached on Pentecost. Uh, um, so, the Pentecost that never happened. Yeah. And, um, I listened to it, engaged with it, um, I said all 25 minutes of it, which... <laughs> I just have to say as a preacher and as a spoken word person, I looked at that time before it started and I thought, Whoa, this is going to, okay, we're going to get into this. Cause I'm the type that's like, okay, we get this, like, you got to say it in 10 minutes or, you know, fewer wow. kind of thing. Um, lovely, beautiful. But for those who might not listen to all of it, um, yeah. talk to us a little bit about the Pentecost that never happened. And
1: uh, yeah. What so that, that- That sermon, of course, was the week, you know, that um, George Floyd was murdered and um, having to Mm -hmm. preach that text that week was a a very, like a challenging. And as I prayed about it and thought about it, it, I just felt like I needed to take a different approach to looking at the text. And I was really convicted by the words of Joel that somehow jump or leap into Peter's mouth Mm -hmm. uh, as he tries to explain to the onlookers what's going on. when the spirit rushes in and people tongues of fire descend and they start speaking languages and understanding in their own language. Um, and what he says from Joel, of course, is the text about how the spirit is going to land on all flesh. That language of all flesh is just so interesting to me as you think about skin color and the construct of race in America. And, and it says young and old male and female and uh, then, of course, slave and free, and so of course, the legacy of patriarchy is is critiqued, the, the legacy of, of um, you know either young or old being the dominant sort of um, force, or uh, sort of the history and legacy of slavery being sort of brought up there for me and And so I just said, as I looked at that, I was uh, startled by the fact that I you know, here we are now, two thousand years later, and the Pentecost that that Joel proclaimed that Peter then sort of echoes uh, to explain Pentecost still hasn't happened. The church still hasn't figured out how to be all flesh, to be for all flesh um, and to, and, and to care about all flesh, to be one as all flesh. And so the, the legacy of patriarchy still reigns old people and young people, both are treated by the church in different uh, exclusionary ways And of course, the legacy of slavery and the racial divide in in church uh, is um, still obvious and white supremacy still reigns supreme in in much of American Christianity. So I was just trying to call out that, that that Pentecost that Joel had proclaimed, which I think Joel, of course, is echoing Moses in Numbers 11, where the spirit comes out and some goes on people that they didn't want. and Moses says, we want everybody to be prophets. Wouldn't it be great if everybody was a prophet? Yeah. Um, and that then comes and gets echoed in Joel, and then echoed in Peter, but I, you know, I thought it was pretty startling that even Peter doesn't, doesn't get it, right, you know, here he is quoting Joel, and then not even a few chapters later, letter, later, Paul's having to call him out on not eating with Gentiles, you know, and then only a few chapters later from that, we have this big moment with Cornelius, where the sheet comes down, and famously he's told that all people, all things are clean, and he has to he's still adjusting. He's still trying yeah. to figure this thing out. So yeah. he, of course he's always the quintessential disciple, right? The model for all of us that we're going to get it and then not get it and then get it and then not get it and fail and trip over ourselves and drown and stand self-righteous uh, and then suddenly fall right on our faces. And that is to me a great model. He, his whole life is sort of a perfect witness of what it means to struggle with your own
2: whiteness.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that. I um, the way that I preach is through story, and so I did a Monday Thursday uh, like I was Peter mm. uh, a couple years ago, and that helped me have compassion for him
2: mm-hmm. in a
0: way that I had never because I've always just been like, oh, I roll my eyes at Peter, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm like, God, shut up, you're so annoying, you know.
2: Yeah, Peter, um,
0: and, it, and and really sort of asking questions of his story and who he is and, and yeah. why he would be as um, kind of you know confidently outspoken as he is, but so deeply insecure and, mm. and riddled with shame. I, it just helped me love him in a way that um, yeah. I hadn't been able to love him previously, yeah. so that's really beautiful. Yeah. A couple of the quotes that stood out to me uh, from your sermon that I just want to share here are um, the true Pentecost has not come yet. And we, the church, we, God's people are the ones who will have to make it happen. Um, yeah. And then if we're not willing to shout black lives matter with every fiber of our being, then we have no business talking out about Pentecost and spirit. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it it just those were, of course, lines, uh, truths that that settled mm-hmm. in deep with me and made me think about the years of uh, Pentecost Sunday and wearing the red and, and mm-hmm. proclaiming Spirit that we have done, um, and and perhaps have done uh, prematurely. I think, as you're suggesting here. Um, yeah,
1: I think there's certainly, we should celebrate Pentecost, mm-hmm. obviously, but it's one of those places where we have to hold all of our celebrations now in this moment with, alongside the prophetic words about the way God sees celebrations that don't also um, come with justice, you know, so the worship celebrations that, that don't also proclaim justice. And the way that God says you'd be better off just going out and feeding the hungry than worshiping right now, because your, your worship is not, um, it's just, it's, it's falling on deaf ears if it's not held with the passion and commitment to, to making the world into the kingdom of God, you know. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think we can celebrate, but we have to connect the, the spirit's movement to this egalitarian, uh, radical egalitarian um, proclamation by Joel that Peter uses to interpret the spirit's movement. And then of course, you know, we see it later. Paul says it in Galatians, right? Galatians three twenty eight. It's the same people that Paul mentions that are in Joel male and female slave and free. I mean, it's, it's right there. Um, and so I think, um, yeah, we're not there yet, but we have to always carry that vision with us every time we're in worship celebration, that this radical egalitarian vision of what the world could be is the elimination of the hierarchy of whiteness. And, um, we're constantly called to, to do that. And I think to, to the question about, we have to make it happen. That may sound like, you know, Pelagianism to some of our listeners, you know, but, um, you know, God doesn't give a, God empowers us always, but we have to take it to the next step, right? We, 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 we God does not do it all for us. Right. God gives right. us the spirit and then we get to do with the spirit what we decide yeah. um, to do. So we've got to take the final step and taking the spirit where it's leading.
0: Yeah. Being enfleshed and embodied, mm-hmm. right? We have, we have this flesh, we have this skin, we have these bodies uh to, carry uh be the boots on the ground right Right. Uh, right. to carry this love into the world makes me think too of of amos and we love to quote the you know let justice roll down and before that he says don't give me your Mm chants and your burnt offerings and your incantations and your you know i mean and and we see it in the psalms right it's like i don't i don't want this i want the broken and the contrite heart Right. Um. I, I want you know the justice rolls down when we mm. stop sort of giving lip service to it and instead, like I don't know, get down yeah. on the on the earth and actually plant something.
1: <laughs> so. Right there. You go. Yeah. Garden. Create a beautiful yeah. garden. Right.
0: Right. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Thank you for. Joining us, of course, uh, in the two-year academy and the the beauty that I know you shared there and helped grow there. So we're just glad they've yeah. been with us all these years and continue to be. And uh, oh,
2: it's
1: my honor! I mean, the upper room and the academy have changed my life and been so important to me. I encourage everyone, every minister, every layperson to consider a five-day or a two-year academy, uh, it will change you uh, in the best possible way. I got a shout out to my Academy 39 people because I'm sure some of them will listen to them and I miss them and my my covenant group so much. Mm -hmm. And um, so definitely want to shout out to them and to all the folks at the upper room and thank you for everything y'all are doing.
0: Yeah, thanks. And so I wonder if you would, do you have the body... Is yeah, I I
1: just want to say that uh, it's it's rather long, but I'm happy to do it. Um, well, maybe um, let's see how long it is. It's not too bad. Let me try it, and okay. I will I, I will confess that she does this so much better than me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you should. Anyone who hears this should look up Sonia Renee Taylor's "The Body Is Not Apology" and watch her performed this as a spoken word artist. Uh, she used this as a benediction, so I will, I'll share it uh, now. The body is not an apology. Let it not be, forget-me-not, fixed to mattress when night threatens to leave the room empty as the belly of a crow. The body is not an apology. Present it not as a dissembled rifle when he has yet to prove himself more than a common intruder. The body is not an apology. Let it not be common as oil, ash, or toilet. Let it not be small as gravel, stain, or teeth. Let it not be mountain when it is sand. Let it not be ocean when it is grass. Let it not be shaken, flattened, or raised in contrition. The body is not an apology. Do not give it as confession, communion. Do not ask for it to be pardoned as criminal. The body is not a crime, is not a gun. The body is not a spill to be contained. It is not a lost set of keys, a wrong number dialed. It is not the orange burst of blood to shame white dresses. The body is not an apology. It is not the unintended granules of bone beneath wheel. The body is not kill. It is not unkempt car. It is not a forgotten appointment. Do not speak it vulgar. The body is not soiled. It is not filth to be forgiven. The body is not an apology. It is not father's backhand. It is not mother's dinner late again ricked jaw howl. It is not the drunken sorcery of contorting steel round tree. It is not calamity. The body is not a math test. The body is not a wrong answer. The body is not a failed class. You are not failing. The body is not a cavity, is not a hole to be filled, to be yanked out. It is not a broken thing to be mended, be tossed. The body is not a prison, is not a sentence to be served, is not a pavement, is not prayer. The body is not an apology. Do not give the body as gift, only receive it as such. The body is not to be prayed for, is to be prayed to. So for the evermore more total 10th grade knows, hallelujah. For the shower song throat that crackles like grandfather's Victrola, hallelujah. For the spine that never healed, for the lamb bent heart that didn't either, hallelujah. For the slopping pulp of back hip belly, hosanna. For the errant hairs that rove the face like a pack of displaced wolves, hosanna. For the parts we have endeavored to excise, blessed be. The cancer, the palsy, the womb that opens like a trapdoor. Praise the body and its blackjack magic, even this, for the razor wire mouth, for the sweet God ribbon within, praise. For the mistake that never was, praise, for the bend, twist, fall, and rise again, fall and rise again, for the rising like an obstinate Christ, for the salvation of a body that bends like a baptismal bowl. For those who worship at the lip of this sanctuary, praise the body, for the body is not apology. The body is deity. The body is God. The body is God. The only righteous love that will never need to say sorry. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks for listening along with us today. For more information on how you can begin and continue the work of anti-racism, visit the Academy Resources page at academy.upperroom.org resources. Feel free to share this podcast with others. May it be a prayer, a guide, an inspiration, a beacon of hope, a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. to hear more from faculty and wisdom guides in the area of spiritual formation and to learn more about academy offerings visit us online at academy.upperroom.org